Our scripture reading today is from Matthew 28, 1 through 20, and it's in the context of a group of men and women who had been mourning for three days. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you it is true. So they ran quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And Jesus met them on the way and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And while they were going, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had gathered the elders and taken counsel, they gave a a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were sleeping. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go! And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. <laughs> As a pastor, this is about my 20th Easter sermon. And years past, I tried to come up with something novel and new, but really it's simply, this is the message. Come and see the place where he lay. He is not here. He has risen from the dead. That's the message that holds everything together. And why today is the most sacred of days for us as a church all across the world. I'm looking forward to exploring this with you today. This is the theme verse that we've chosen. It's on the backdrop, but I'd like you to say it with me from Romans chapter four. He was delivered to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. He was delivered to death for our sins, raised to life for our justification. Make no mistake, if there was no empty tomb, Jesus dead on a cross was merely a martyr. But because of the empty tomb, he's a savior, amen? If it was just Jesus dead on a cross, then he was a good man. But with the empty tomb, he's Lord God. 
and Christ. That's how important this is. The empty tomb is an essential part of the gospel. That's why we say Christ has died, Christ is risen, and that gives us hope that Christ will come again. Watchman Nee said, our old history ends with the cross, and our new history begins with the resurrection. That statement isn't just true of world history, it's true of your and my history. Listen to it again. Our old history ends with the cross. That's what this verse is saying, right? He was put to death for our sins. That's our past. That's all of our past. And Jesus died that that history could be put aside. Our old history ends at the cross because he was put to death for our sin. But our new history begins in the resurrection because he was raised for our justification. Justification is actually a legal term. Somebody paid the debt for you, and because of that, your slate is clean. From the moment you are forgiven in Christ, you have a new history to live. It's his death for our sin that reminds us that we can put that old history, that old life behind. And his resurrection is what lets us know that we can write a new history with God's presence in our life. I love that. That's the message of Easter. For the disciples, that Friday, all the promises they'd made to one another and that Jesus had made to them had proven to be empty promises. And then on Sunday morning, on that first Resurrection Sunday, all those promises became full and there was hope and there was joy. Our life is filled with empty promises. We make to each other, we make empty promises to ourselves. Media makes empty promises to you that you can be better looking and sexy and rich and famous if you just buy this product. I heard somebody say that there are lots of promises that are filled with emptiness. But in the Easter story, God gives us emptiness that is full of promise. And so we're gonna look at three promises that come out of the resurrection, and each of them is marked by something in the Easter story that's empty. The first one is the empty cross. Ethan had us in the Gospel of Matthew. I ask you to turn there with me again. Matthew chapter 28, verse one. After the Sabbath, at the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. So picture them probably before dawn in the early light. And perhaps as they walked, they could see as so many could just outside of the city on a hill called Golgotha, probably a garbage dump. Perhaps they could yet see three empty crosses because of the Sabbath, they would still have been there on that first Resurrection Sunday. And the one we focus on is the one in the middle where Christ was crucified. Just zoom in there in your mind and picture what it must have looked like two days after the horrendous execution of Jesus. Probably blood all over. Blood high, just below the sign that said Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, right there from the crown that was pressed down onto his head and certainly on the main beam of the cross there would have been blood all the way up and down from his back that had been beaten with a cat of nine tails with weight at the end and all along pieces of jagged rock and glass 
in such a way that as they pulled, they tore flesh away right down to the very bone itself. Blood where his feet, where his hands were nailed to the cross. Maybe even down on the ground, there's a pool of blood just to the left of the cross where the soldiers had taken the spear and put it up into Jesus' side to make sure that he was dead. And he was. Blood and water flowing out, which indicates heart rupture. Make no mistake, Jesus was dead. Don't let anybody ever tell you that he faked it somehow. Jesus had died. The Romans knew it, the soldiers knew it, the Jews knew it. In fact, they conspired in the story after the fact of the resurrection to explain that the disciples had stolen him away. And just imagine, just imagine these scared disciples, one of whom had denied and gone off in complete defeat just nights before. Imagine them defeating an entire Roman guard, moving a two-ton stone, stealing Jesus just so they could lie and say that he rose again from the dead, only to then willingly commit martyrdom in order to preserve that lie. I don't have enough faith to believe that. Jesus had died. What promise do we have in the empty cross? It's the promise of forgiven sins. That's what Romans 4 means. He was delivered over to death for our sins. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Just nights before, Jesus had eaten the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room. At the right time, he took the bread as part of that feast, and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup, the cup of blessing. This is what he said. Let's say it together. This cup is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, I want to be very clear to you today that when we say Jesus died for our sins, it wasn't something Paul invented as some historians want to rework history to suggest that he absconded with Christianity and redefined it into what it's known as today. Jesus' gospel was very clear. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. How am I going to do that? I'm going to die. My blood's going to be shed for the sins of many. So when we see the empty cross in that Easter morning, perhaps silhouetted against the early dawn, we see a promise that sins can be forgiven. Paul writes, through one person's disobedience, many were made sinners, but through the obedience of one, Christ, many are made righteous. If you're here today and you're exploring Christ, you're here as a guest, what I'm gonna share with you today, these three promises are actually the essence of the Christian message. And it begins with this promise, Christ came to save the lost. And the Bible says all of us are lost. It's not popular to say that in today's culture. Our dogma And it is, we have to take this by faith. There's no proof of this. When we say people are essentially good, we're born innocent, and that's why a lot of us say, I don't need a savior. But what I ask you to do is to not argue the public you, 
But I ask you to admit who the private you is. The one who hates. You say, I don't hate anybody. You might not call it hate, but it is. That inner you that has lied, that has stolen in some way. I'm asking you to look at the real you and then hear Christ say, I came to save sinners. Because scripture says that's our race. We are a fallen race. It's why Christ came, to pay for our sin. You see, it's good news if we can get to the point of admitting our need for it. It's our pride that keeps us from understanding that Christ came to save us and that the empty cross is a promise that our sins can be forgiven. The second scene is the empty tomb. The story picks up at verse two. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Imagine being these women, the earthquake happening while they're going and and gathering themselves. And then they go to the scene of the tomb itself and it's even more startling. The stone has been flipped up and out of the way. And an angel, white like lightning, is sitting on it as though he was enjoying the morning. And the Roman guards were all unconscious, scattered around the scene. And what is it that the angel says? Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. What's the promise that is ours because of the empty tomb? It's a promise that we also can have eternal life. Why do you suppose the angel removed the stone? You might think, well, to let Jesus out. But the tomb was already empty. So why did the angel remove the stone? It wasn't so that Jesus could come out. It was so the disciples could go in. The stone removed from the tomb was an invitation to the whole world. Come and see. It's an invitation to recognize that death doesn't win because Christ conquered it. It's an invitation to know that this is not the end. We see it in Jesus' own words in John 11 when he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even if they die. O death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? I tell this story almost every Easter at most funerals because it's one of the best illustrations to understand how the empty tomb takes away the sting of death. Lehman Strauss, a great Christian leader from the last century, when he was a boy, was traveling with his father down a country road. The windows were open and a bee came in. Lehman was allergic to bee stings, and so, of course, he was frantic. And the father just reached where the bee was, took his hand, pulled away, and had the bee in his hand. And with that, the young layman Strauss breathed a sigh of relief. And then after about a moment, the father released his hand, and the bee flew out. And the boy became afraid again. And the father said, no, no, wait, wait, wait. And he showed him his hand where the bee had left his stinger. And he said, you see... The bee can't scare you anymore. It doesn't have power over you because I took its sting. That's what Christ did. The sting of death is gone. 
because of the empty tomb. That there was a third thing that was empty in this scene. It was the grave clothes. In Luke and in John, we hear that when the women came back to report the scene, Peter and John go running to the empty tomb, and it says they went in and they saw the grave clothes empty as though there was a body in them. The cloth that was on his face was still laid as though his his head was still there, but now it wasn't. And what that reminds us is that this resurrection of Christ was not just a spiritual resurrection, it was a physical resurrection. It was Jesus, the incarnated man, who rose from the dead. And that's why he meets them. And then later on, he eats with them and Thomas touches wounds in his hands and in his side. And he fishes with them. In fact, they fish better with him, if you know the story. The empty grave clothes remind us that we can be in relationship with Jesus himself because he's alive today. There's an interesting contrast that we can make between Christ's resurrection and another resurrection that had happened just weeks perhaps even less than that before, and that was when Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the grave. How many know the story? He's the brother of Mary and Martha, two very close friends of Jesus. They're the Mary and Martha from that story where they're in the house and Martha's all busy doing her virtuous woman thing from Proverbs 31, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet. Remember that story? Martha thinks being busy is being righteous because that's what her whole culture has told her. And Mary's sitting there, young, impetuous Mary. Here she is, not just avoiding doing the work, but sitting in front of the one that is probably the Messiah. What must he think? And so she came into the room and spoke to Jesus. Maybe she'll listen to Jesus. Lord, tell Mary to come in with me and help me. You know, do that woman thing that virtuous woman thing. And instead Jesus said to her, oh Martha, Martha, you're distracted by many things. Mary has made the better choice. That, that Mary and Martha. It was their brother Lazarus who was taken sick. And the story says that Jesus was told, people came because they knew he loved Lazarus. And Jesus chose not to go. And at a moment he said, we're going to go now because Lazarus has died. Jesus knew he had died. Secondly, Jesus had waited for it. And then he shows up and we have this powerful scene where his sisters come out in turn and they say, oh, Jesus, if you'd only been here, Lazarus would still be alive. And then Jesus said, the verse we saw earlier, I'm the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Take me to the place where he's laid. And he stands with all the family and friends in that small village near the tomb of Lazarus. And they're weeping because it's just been four days. And Jesus weeps with them because in his heart he knew it wasn't meant to be this way. We weren't meant for this. Sin came into the world and death through sin. And then he cries out, Lazarus, come forth. 
And he does. But how does Lazarus come forth? What's he wearing? His grave clothes, sort of like this. Lazarus still had his grave clothes on, but when Christ was raised from the dead, no grave clothes. Why? Think about this. For Lazarus, that resurrection was a temporary reprieve. <laughs> Lazarus died again. Grave clothes would still be in Lazarus's future. But think about this. Never, ever again in Christ's. And because Christ lives, because Christ left the grave clothes behind, we don't have to fear the grave clothes. We know that we will also live. But more than that, we have this promise of a personal Savior who said at the end of this passage that Ethan read for us, when he said, go and make disciples, what was his final promise? Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. These are the promises of Easter. An empty cross promises us forgiveness of sins. An empty tomb promises us everlasting life. An empty grave cloth lets you know that we can know Jesus personally. And that's available to all of you today. Christian, if you know that, can you celebrate that that's true in your life today? Can you capture the joy? Because the news is just as good for us today as it was 2,000 years ago. And for those who are here as a polite friend waiting to head off and have your ham for lunch today, (laughs) can I encourage you to realize that these promises are for you? You can leave here writing a new history. Christ makes it possible for you to end your old history because he died for that past. And in his resurrection, he justifies you. He cleans your slate, and you can write a new life in him. And that simply comes by saying, I believe that. I admit that need. I believe that Jesus is my risen Lord. We're going to celebrate the Lord's table. But as we do, let's remember these promises. Let's remember the empty cross, the empty tomb, and the empty grave cloth. So that as we come, we come joyfully and gratefully. If you have professed Jesus as your Savior, we welcome you to come. If you are not a Christian, you can in this moment partake if this is an act of faith. If you're saying, I'm accepting this today and I'm gonna celebrate this communion as my first act as a believer in Jesus, as my Savior and Lord. Father, as we come to your table, we just rejoice in the truth of this. This It's one of those mornings where I want in my own power and strength to just push such joy and transformation and hope into the hearts of everyone here. But that's not my job to do. That's your work, your Holy Spirit's work. And so I ask for that hope. I ask for those that have lost loved ones this year and feel the pain of death, the sting of death in the grave, I pray that even with that they will experience a hope because we are not like those who are without hope, Scripture says. I pray for those who are struggling and feeling defeated by life right now, by circumstances. I pray for them. I pray that they will understand that you suffered the worst of life 
Let them hear you say, I will never leave you or forsake you. And Father, may all of us, as we see once again you hanging on a cross, suspended between heaven and earth, offered to death for our sins, may we, as we partake today, cry out, my Lord and my God. In Jesus' name, amen.